Hello. It is five o'clock somewhere, and that means this is our happy hour episode. We are going to answer business questions from our community. Now, I need to point out that we are a religious, we are a political, but other than that, y'all, nothing is off limits. Welcome to the most valuable fucking show you're going to listen to all week. This is Unfuck My Business. We have collected our finest and most intoxicated to answer your community questions here today. And so I'm going to quickly introduce and let them wave at you. We have Chris Delaney. We have Jinx. We have Victor Bolivar and Jen Bolivar. We have Danielle Laura and we have Kathleen Seide. And I am the designated driver for this evening. This is water in a fancy glass. I'm Robin Sales and I'm gonna be asking these yahoos some of your burning questions. So let's start with an easy one. What book should be mandatory for everyone to read? I say The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks because it talks about hitting those upper limits. And if you really want to go where you want to go in life, you need to read that book. Good one, Danielle. So my favorite is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And her title specifically came from a Theodore Roosevelt speech talking about not listening to those critics unless they're in the arena with you. Wow. I'm going to throw in uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World just because it, it talks so much about how information overload combined with the appropriate level of medication, whether that's psych meds or food or sex or whatever else, helps dumb down a population at large, which makes them easier to control. I'm going to go with Untethered Soul by Michael Singer because it's about how you can choose to be happy. And I think everybody needs more of that. I'm going to go basic, man. When it comes to money, rich dad, poor dad, Robert Kiyosaki. I don't like the things you have done after the book, but that particular book is very, very good. And it's very basic. And it kind of gives you the basis of economics. I'm going to be a rebel and give three. One for the business. Ray Dalio's Principles is absolutely a book that should be out there for business philosophy and leadership and life and work. It's a big one, but he's got a lot of things to share that are valuable. The second one is going to be something that is more about a skill set, which Jinx actually gave to us, Slicing Pie and Mike Moyer, one of the most valuable books I've ever read for equity models. And the third one will be something for fun, which is All oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. Love that All one. Excellent recommendations. I will add On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Oh, yeah. I feel like if you want to know what the pure joy of living is, that book will tell you. And then also The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In case you were wondering, the answer is in fact 42. All right. God damn it. Hold on. I have to throw in a late contender now because you suggested On the Road with Jack Kerouac, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is probably one of the greatest books that I've ever read that's based around a road trip, but it really talks about things like systems and processes and how to measure quality. And, and I fun, like that's an amazing book. Sorry. I got a late ad. Sorry. The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. They're just four basic principles that yes. we all know. We just all know them, but they're framed in a way to give you wisdom for days. That's a great book. I'll second that. Don Miguel Ruiz, The Mastery of Love, to hit that one up as well. Another book that couples should read and you should read for yourself. I mean, Delaney, you already gave three, which is part of the reason why we started bringing in our late ads, but you know, now you made it four. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. Don't at me, bro. <laughs> so fun fact, if you want the 
business leadership version of the four agreements, there's a book called Leading with Grit. The woman who wrote that is actually friends with Don Miguel Ruiz and got his permission to turn it into leadership language. Nice. Thank you. Okay. So famous people have been doing a lot lately in response to COVID to try to up our spirits, to engage our philanthropic side, to bring us all together in global kumbaya moments. And some of them work and some of them don't. What celebrities or famous personalities have surprised you the most in the last four months? All right, I hate to go all negative here and shit, but Elon Musk, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Seriously, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you are up there among my favorite technological technology entrepreneurs, and you're, like, arguing against using masks on your production line and shit, and you're, like, talking shit about people need to go back to work sooner. I mean, we're not all billionaires, dude. What the fuck? What are you doing? You were super disappointing to me right now. Your high point was when you smoked a joint on the Joe Rogan experience. Your low point was literally all of your Twitter for like the last 45 days. What the fuck? Tell us how you really feel, Jinx. Don't, don't sugarcoat it. I feel like I covered it. I think the most interesting announcement was the partnership of Melinda Gates and Mackenzie Bezos and their framework around women empowerment. And I'm not exactly sure of the details or where it's going to go, but I'm really intrigued because they have a lot of money to do a lot of great things. And I hope that they use that voice and that power to better how women are represented in leadership. Amen, sister. Anybody else? Any other surprising celebrities? I'll just say, I loved this. So John Krasinski of The Office, who you know I just love in general, launched the good news show and it's just irreverent it's cute it's like got you know the sign is made by his kids with crayons and it's just in a time when it's been so dark and so negative it's it was just this really nice breath of fresh air and i love that he put the energy behind that i agree i love it it makes me so happy and it was so humorous and so on point i love it makes me happy too but i do believe he sold that shit for a considerable sum of money didn't he (laughs) <laughs> I was just about to say, in, yes. in another surprising turn, motherfucker sold it already and made coin. Yeah. Speaking of entrepreneurship. Capitalism. It was like an eight-figure payday on that shit, I think it was. Shit. There's so, not much I wouldn't do for eight figures, bro. I don't, I don't necessarily care what celebrities do. I mean, the only ones that I've seen that I actually like listen to or follow has been Dwayne Johnson and some of the ventures he's been involved in. But I will say this. Some of the musicians out there who are doing like from their home concerts and everything else have been fucking amazing. Yeah, those from the home concerts have been amazing. I'm just going to be real. I'm like a 92-year-old Mima when it comes to like all the current events of celebrities. So I have nothing to add here because I don't pay attention to it. Fair enough. All right. So we know that there is an abundance of ideas in this group and in our community at large. So I want you to imagine that your idea is headed to Shark Tank. So you're about to go pitch to the sharks. Which one do you want to be all in on your deal? Which shark do you want to work with? I start off with Mr. Wonderful for sure. Personality I could work really well with, knowledgeable, understands many different spaces, has the connections, the resources, and I can deal with him. I love his philosophy on business. I mean, Kevin O'Leary is a real like bloodthirsty kind of shark, you know? I feel like you're probably always going to make money with him, but maybe less than you could have with somebody else. So, you know, it's a toss up. Like, you he's not going to like you're dealing with him for sure. Yeah. 
I like, you know, I mean, for me personally, Mark Cuban is the dude I, I would love to do a, a deal with. You know, he's savvy. He's technology oriented. He's ahead of Kevin O'Leary by a few numbers on the Billy Club, you know, and he knows software in particular. And so, like, for me, that just seems like an obvious answer. I would love to do a deal with Mark Cuban. I'll do Mark Cuban too, brother. I, um, I just think he's more down to earth and he feels that he'll be more of a mentor as well. And he's got so much money. I don't think he will care much about actually the cash, but he will help out to guide me through processes and shit like that. I'm going to have to say Barbara Kokorin, I think is her last name. And the reason why I say that is she's got a phenomenal story. Illiterate, overcame some serious adversity. She represents everything I think a woman should in terms of leading with your heart and also bringing that element into business. And she, in, she just invests all in with the people that she goes into business with. So I'm a huge fan of hers. That's who I pick. Her social media is fire too, by the way. Like she like her social media is on point. I'm, I'm super impressed with her. I'll say I haven't watched cable television since I lived with my parents. So I don't know all the people on Shark Tank, but I'm going to say Barbara because she's also in the real estate space. And I have a feeling that there would be a ton of information that I could learn from her. I was also going to say Barbara because of, well, everything you mentioned, Jen, I 100% agree. And I think she's just a badass businesswoman and she's hilarious. And I think that's just an awesome combination. So I'm going to zig where all the other ladies zagged and say, I don't think I'd work well with Barbara. I don't think personality wise, she and I would get along. So I would pick Mark Cuban. I could deal with that energy all day, every day. He reminds me of a lot of the sales executives I've worked with in the corporate world. I can pick up what he's putting down and I feel like I could speak his language and we could make some magic happen. All puns and innuendos intended in the way I structured that. <laughs> All right, let's go from sharks to pop stars. Whether you call it a guilty pleasure or something you just don't readily admit, there are certain pop songs that we all love, but we wouldn't necessarily want people to know we love them. So if we were to catch you when you thought nobody was looking, what pop song would you be shaking your booty to? I'll jump in on this. So for the record, I am constantly shaking my booty in the kitchen while nobody's looking. There's always a soundtrack playing at my house and I have different soundtracks for uh, different moods. I have a soundtrack it's called Best Day of My Life, and it's just not a soundtrack, but it's the conglomeration of a bunch of songs that just make me happy. And so the one that started that was I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. Love it. That's a jam. I'm not mad at Black Eyed Peas. Like, I was, I was on some Black Eyed Peas for a hot little minute about 10 years ago, so. I, I love all different styles of music, Latin music, pop music. Right now, I have literally joined the COVID TikTok community. And there's a song, and you're probably going to kill me. I'm going to attempt to play it. Right here we go. Is that Get Low? No, that's definitely not. It's Tap In. Oh, tap, shit. Tap, tap, tap In. God Did damn it. <laughs> who's, who sings that, babe? I think it's Saweetie. Mm. I'm going to suggest the beat's been reused. <laughs> Haven't all beats so. been reused? I mean, yeah. Anything Justin Timberlake is on my guilty pleasure list. I'm a huge JT fan. I think he's fucking talented. I think he's multifaceted. And that motherfucker is sexy as hell. And Delaney, with that hair, I mean, you're bringing sexy back. So, you know, I feel like. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> JT is amazing. Jennifer and I went to his concert last year. 
and we got VIP picked from the crowd, like just kind of handpicked. And we saw him like right here. He's also pretty hot. So I like him too. That's it. A lot of man love in this. He was hoping you could break dance, Victor. I can definitely break dance. You look like a B-boy. <laughs> I, w- I was supposed to see him back when they played Madison Square Garden when, when Future Sex Love Sound came out and I had a fucking shift at Cracker Barrel I, I couldn't get out of. Oh. I'm going to go with absolutely no shame. Everybody by Backstreet Boys. Yes. Can you do the dance? Pretty much anything Backstreet Boys is going to be my jam. So. Damn, you go, yeah. girl. So I'm the grumpy old bastard and I'm going to throw this way the fuck back because y'all are talking about like some modern shit. To me, the monkeys were like one of the first major fucking pop groups and I will fucking jam the fuck out to any monkey song at any point in time. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. There was like a Nickelodeon show that were they on the Nickelodeon show or was it like they just played their music? Nickelodeon show was syndication. The whole thing with the monkeys was that they were like they were like a pop band that was artificially constructed and then they were famous for the music that they made and then they made like movies and shit. And then they were like, we don't want to be a fake band. And so they like made their own real albums and their own real movies. And it was like wildly trippy shit. <laughs> like seriously, if you look at like the, the end of the monkeys career, like the last like two to three years, it's like, wow, you guys were eating a lot of acid at the time. Right. That has to be the case. You know, they were one of the very first constructed bands. They were based on the aesthetic of the Beatles. And a management company put them together and auditioned all the parts and all the rest of that. That's pop, right? Like, you know, some huge corporation figures out what the best algorithm for a certain kind of market sales is. The Monkees were built around that and then they rebelled against it. So I love them so much for that. They had the audacity to want to actually play their own stuff and write their own tunes. How dare they? Also, if you look deeper into some of their lyrics, like really pay attention to what they're singing about in Pleasant Valley Sunday, it'll blow your mind. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of the best fucking songs ever. I mean, if you want to like the most, the most intense indictment of capitalism ever, it's the pop ass monkeys song, Pleasant Valley Sunday. Rows of houses that look all the same and no one seems to care. Like, I don't even understand how they got airplay with the like really like what's that called uh, um, the counterculture the subversive was subversive as fuck. Yep. So um, I, I like Kathleen. I like songs that kind of bring me up and makes me happy. So I'll take it really, really way back. My favorite band is The Doors, and when I hear Breaking Through, bro, I fucking just it's, it's short and sweet. And I just need those two and a half minutes to just park me up, man. So there you have it. Jim Morrison, baby. I just learned so much about you with that little tidbit of information. I love The Doors. Love The Doors. My favorite band. So my guilty Shake Your Booty Pop song is fucking Taylor Swift. I don't want to like her, but Shake It Off is just T-Swift. So- She's it's so freaking catchy. I like the it the booty is compelled to move when that song comes on. Now, the band I will say that I have loved unabashedly for all time is Duran Duran. You put on any Duran Duran song and I am there. Wow. 80s man, Duran Duran is a shit. Love it. 
And yeah. Kim is uh, undone. I mean, can, can like undone? Can can we shout that out? Because that like that was a late game entry for Duran Duran. They're like, by the way, we've been around for forty years, but uh, hey, here's something relevant right fucking now that will now become timeless. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, Duran Duran. Yo, Taylor Swift is no joke, man. I I saw her documentary on Netflix. I respect her, man. She's that uh, she write her shit. She knows what she's doing. Good for her. And you know how to shake it off, right, Victor? Of course. I'm from Victor's Venezuela. An amazing dancer. Don't let him fool you. He is an amazing. I tell him all the time he should be a salsa instructor. This <laughs> My biggest disappointment is the lack of updates on his Patreon. <laughs> Victor, I want to learn salsa. Can you be my teacher? One hundred percent. Teachers. One I'll teach any everybody in this in this room right now. Yes. Not right now, but I'll teach him for sure. I love to. I'd love to. We were taking salsa before COVID was a thing. We got, we got, we got, we got there pretty good. I remember that when we, when we went out for dinner. I mean, salsa has like four steps. We need to get into like some merengue, you know, or, or, you know, like. Merengue is so boring. Jennifer will hate me for this, but I fucking hate merengue. I love merengue. There's nothing to it. It's like really simple. So I, you know. But salsa is even simpler. It has fewer steps. No, Not you have really. To you got to know how to do it, man. Yeah, man. You can add some, some. It's all in the hips. I mean, if we're if we're gonna go hard, let's go with tango, right? Let's go with like some, you know, like Gotan and, and Welvo Al Sur, you know, like tango is really where it starts to get like deeply creative and personal, you know. Nah, like, dude, you're, you'll be surprised. A little bit of Florida. You gotta watch me dance salsa. You'll, you'll, I'll change your mind. I'm gonna subscribe to your OnlyFans, Victor. You bet. Nine ninety nine. Oh, all right. So before we make mistakes here in this episode, let's talk about mistakes that we've made in the past. Bit late for that. Yeah. So what is the biggest mistake you've made either in a job or in your career? And then conversely, what's the thing that you're proudest of, like your proudest moment that comes to immediate recollection? I'll start off with an icebreaker because this is a mistake I just made like three minutes ago. So in an attempt to play that song and try and turn up the volume, I hit the SOS button like three times. And I'm pretty sure I called the police and they tried to call me back a few times. And that is what you get for trying to be impromptu in a happy hour when you're drinking. So if our camera water. goes black, we know what happened. We know what happened. If you hear sirens. You swap our- yourself on, on a podcast. <laughs> woo, woo, that's the sound yo, the yo, stay, stay inside of the house, baby. Stay inside of the house. <laughs> I'll point them in your direction, Victor. This is a bad room to point them to. Do not let them come to this room. <laughs> I just really recommend that you like cover yourself in American flags before they answer the door. That's, no that's all I'm going to recommend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, Jesus Christ, I'm going to eat this. This is our first, this is our inaugural happy hour. And this is a shitty question, all things considered. So I'm going to go ahead and eat it. Guy Kawasaki is kind of a major player in the space. He was the chief evangelist for Apple. He founded garage.com way back in like the 2000s, like dot com boom and all the rest of that. And he was one of the early adopters of Google Plus, along with about another 300 million of us. But I had like real day-to-day connection and conversation with Guy Kawasaki, which to me was like validation of the platform. I'm able to talk to like major players in the space. So one day, 
Guy Kawasaki makes a post on Google Plus about Kawasaki syndrome. And there's like a read more, which gives you like the rest of his post. But me being the snarky, cynical humor dude that I am, I'm like, oh, Kawasaki syndrome. That's like the compulsion to be an evangelist for brands and to incubate new startups, right? <laughs> if I'd hit read more, what I would have found is that he was talking about the fact that his children had the very real disease, Kawasaki syndrome. No. Oh, Yikes. man. So one of my biggest failures perpetually throughout my life is the fact that I'll try to be snarky and funny and come up with something like off the cuff and respond to it without regard for anything. And then sometimes it's not well-timed in context. And this is one of those times. And Guy Kawasaki is a well-established entrepreneur. He's very good in his space. I imagine that his schedule is very busy, but apparently I offended him enough that he showed up on a couple of my posts after that on Google Plus to tell me what an asshole I was for how I'd responded to that particular post. And so I have tried to get better over the years with, you know, like where I unleash my snarky content, but that was one of the most public and embarrassing fuck-ups that I've ever had in business by knee-jerkingly trying to be comedic on a very public post when someone made a very vulnerable like public statement about some health issues that their family was having. And I fucked that up. So that's my story. Not only did you put your foot in your mouth, you created an arch nemesis. Oh, he like, I, I, mm, it, so six months later, I'd written a, an article about an implementation of some technology with Google plus, And I had a whole shit ton of like Twitter traffic to that article and when I traced it back, it was because he had actually shared the post. And so I guess after me literally like trying to message him 300 times going, I'm so sorry, I'm such a dickhead. I didn't read the whole thing. I'm, you know, like, and he wasn't even responding to me. It was like, you know, I was like cut off. I guess eventually he accepted my apology and like, you know, started engaging with my content again. But Jesus Christ, that was such a fuck up. Like if I clicked read more, I would have understood that it was about his kid's disease. And instead I was just my typical jinx fucking shit talking snarky humor self and fucked it up pretty bad. That really is awful. And my condolences. I'm not sure how we're supposed to follow that one, but I'll hit it off with a lighter note. <laughs> not as, you know, heavy there. So I'm just going to share the very first thing that popped into my mind when Robin asked the question. And they're kind of the same thing for me. But my biggest um, mistake, I would say, in hindsight, is not leaving corporate sooner. And also the proudest moment is when I made the decision to leave corporate and jump into the unknowns of entrepreneurship, not knowing anything about being an entrepreneur, even when everybody in my life told me I was freaking crazy and that I was going to regret it. And it ended up being the best decision ever. And here I am three years later and absolutely could not imagine my life any differently. Cheers to that. Cheers. So my proudest and my biggest regret are in the same category or about the same thing. So I was able to acquire a shitload of real estate before I was 30. And that was right before 05. And I had a nice portfolio of rental properties in, here in town. And it was really well. When Chet went down at around in 2008, I actually went through it 
I didn't have to liquidate shit. I didn't have to short sell anything. It was phenomenal. But I decided that the market was not going to turn around soon enough. So by 09 and 10, I liquidated the majority of my portfolio. Oh, fuck. At times, I think about, I even drive through the fucking properties to look at them. I will have over a million dollars worth of fucking real estate right now if I didn't sell everything. So, boo. (laughs) Oh, that hurts, man. That hurts. I feel it. And I went through the worst time. And it was just illicit. It was fine. 08, 09 came. I was fine. And then I fucking just made a, just a terrible decision. I feel yep. you. I, that ties into my story. I mean, that was a painful time. And the fact that you were able to get through that and not be forced to short sell or get foreclosed on was amazing. Me, I decided to open a real estate company in 2008. What a great oh, idea. So uh, yeah, my mother and I were partners. We'd been working together for a few years and decided that we'd go out on our own. And so, you know, we did the whole like get in the office, sign some contracts, pay a bunch of money for marketing. And, you know, my income went. So that was fun. But it also ties into uh, I feel really good about um, taking the team that I had. So we had uh, 10 or 12 agents working in our office at that time from 2008 to say 2013, 14, as the market came back. And uh, we were able to help them sustain their livelihoods and, and maintain their lifestyles throughout that, including our staff and everything. So like, it was painful for me, but I feel really proud of the fact that we were, even as a brand new real estate company, we, we had it together enough that we were able to support all those people through that process. And it was brutal. It was a really difficult process. So, you know, it's like you go through that and then you just, build a business that's a lot more resilient than it would have been if I didn't have to cut the fat so quickly. I think uh, on that, on that track, when I left the corporate world about four years ago and didn't know what the fuck I was going to do and was in a market, I didn't know anybody. I was in Midland, Texas. For those of you that ever seen Friday night lights, it's a real place and it's 250,000 people and it's oil and gas all the way. And um, I got started in the insurance business and I worked with um, a company that remained nameless, but they have a duck as their spokesperson and saturated as fuck out there. So I would go into businesses that were prospected like nine or 10 times before I even walked in the front door. And here I am, don't say y'all very well, not wearing a hat, not wearing a belt buckle, trying to figure some shit out. But it taught me how to network. But that year, I just decided I was going to be very coachable, very, very teachable. And um, I built some great relationships and built some really strong foundation, learned how to build relationships with people that did shit out there too. Because people were very hungry, very savvy, that were in oil and gas because they required that to learn and developed a six-figure business within the six months I was out there, but then went shiny penny syndrome and went after something else that was kind of a pivot. And if I stayed in that other business, it probably would have been a quarter million dollar business in my first year. And I probably would have moved out to Austin or done something else. Instead, I ended up traveling like 12,000 miles over the next, I don't know, 11 months traveling, speaking, thinking I was doing the deal and had a business partner who wrote a bunch of fraudulent business. And I didn't speak up enough about it and push hard enough. And so as a result, my income went from all the way up there to negative over the course of the next 18 months. And I learned how to get skinny really quick. And also learned a lot about partnerships. So I wish I had spoken up a lot sooner. I don't regret the decisions though, because it taught me a fuck ton about how to measure partnerships. And that was what brought me here. I mean, the, the proudest moment for me is honestly, no, no bullshit like this right here. 
this is like deeply meaningful to me to have some fucking cool ass people. I've been thinking about doing this for like five years. How do I leverage my network and get great people together and just fucking help people? And today taught me a lot about intention and execution. So I'm deeply grateful for that. Cheers to that. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers, man. Well, I'll, I'll end this question with a, a funny story. Hang on to your butts. So, uh, in my corporate days, I had one job at bank where I was teaching new heart orientation weekly. That's how much we were hiring people. I was teaching new heart orientation every Monday. And towards the end of the year, those rooms would be fuller and fuller. So I was chatting with the ladies in the office while all of the new hire attendees were gathering in the room. And I had 35 people waiting for me. <laughs> and uh, short part of the story is brand new boots plus freshly waxed floor don't mix and the very first thing this room full of 35 people saw was me throw open the door and fall straight onto my ass <laughs> like literally i hadn't even said hello just open the door and poof, right onto my ass now that's an entrance that is a hell of an entrance and you know what i kept fucking going i picked myself up i laughed a couple of people had come over to like make sure i was okay i'm like no i'm good and i said and ladies and gentlemen welcome to your new jobs you will never do anything worse than what you just saw me do <laughs> nice right so let all of your nervousness go out the door and then for me i realized you can come back from literally anything like if i just fell on my ass in front of a room full of people and still managed to have a great day then I'm good. And then I think one of the proudest moments for me is after chipping away like 16 years in the corporate world, working, sales teams are diverse. Sales leadership is still predominantly mediocre middle-aged white men <laughs> who you have to fight to get them to listen to your ideas. And so three years after starting my business to be able to come back to a company that I had worked for as an employee. And I'm now a peer an outside consultant at that C-suite table, managing a six figure project for them. That was a very proud moment for me. So let's talk about embarrassing, stressful, like, holy shit. Uh, Kathleen earlier today said she had an oh fuck moment, right? And here, I want to ask you guys about a really, truly, oh, fuck moment for you and your business. So I'm going to read this question exactly how it was written by the member of our community, because I think it's brilliantly structured. What real, genuine, staring at the ceiling and hot sweats, sphincter clenching risks have you taken to reach your goals? I mean, I'll go first since no one else has. God. Oof. I'm going to be vulnerable for a hot second real quick. That pause said Do it, Chris. Do it. Fake it till we you love make you, man. It has been a huge thing for me. Huge thing for me. I've had to turn down cash contracts that would have been like they would have paid my utilities because they were offering me less than what I knew my market value was worth. And so I had to like say no just to prove a point. Those moments in time were hard really fucking hard especially you know when like you know I, w I went almost 100 days or actually over 100 days late on the rent and literally the decision of my landlord to not evict me was the only reason why I was able to continue to build a business after that you know so 
But every single time I took a new contract that was huge, when I went from 5,000 to 15,000 to 25,000 to 50,000 to 75,000 to 95,000, every single time I was clenching my sphincter, <laughs> you know, like every single time I'm like, am I actually good enough to do this? There's this arc of emotions that you have when you sell deals bigger than you ever have because you're like, I can do this. I'm pitching on this. I'm closing on this. Ooh, they took it. Oh, shit. They just signed the contract. Oh, fuck. Now I have to do it. Oh, shit. <laughs> and uh, there's a hell of a lot of risk that comes with project management with projects of any size because there are so many other factors at play with whether or not a project is successful. But if you're the principal, if you're the lead of a project, whether or not that project succeeds fundamentally is going to get hung on your shoulders, you know? So it's like, whoo. And uh, to this day, you know, every time I sell a bigger and bigger project, whether it's through my main company, whether it's through personal consulting or anything else, my sphincter clenches every time. <laughs> Because I'm always like, okay, okay, I sold this. Now I have to deliver it. And that's where the real stress comes in. Because if I don't deliver it to this level, then it completely takes away from the entire reputation that I built up through all this time. And at the end of the day, when you're a personality or a profile-driven business, your reputation is the most important asset that you have. Your last project's recommendation determines whether or not you get the next one. So, yeah, that makes my sphincter clench. No question about that. I'm going to throw this one out there. I know there's no stranger to um, condensing timeframes and living a lot of life in a short window of time. That includes moving halfway across the country with a woman I spent five days with because we were very intentional about the front end of that relationship and decided to move together and, oh, by the way, partnering businesses together and, oh, by the way, now buying a house together. But before that, one of the biggest things that happened to me, I mentioned, you know, that fall from grace, my first year as an entrepreneur and, and fucking more money hitting my bank account than I'd ever seen in a short window of time. And I don't know about y'all, but when that happened, I was like, cool, I don't have to look at my bank account. Let's just keep rolling. It's going to keep going. And you have that sense of I lost hunger. I was actually stressed out of my mind one morning when I woke up in a panic attack because I was like, I have not done anything for my business in like five, six days. That turned into 10 days. And then all of a sudden I was cold sweating, thinking everything was going to fall apart because I'd been broke as shit before that when I went through my divorce just like a year prior. And there was a moment in time where the business was falling apart and we found out this business partner was just shitting everything and it was hitting reputation and everything else. And, and it impacted people I cared about. That was the thing that killed me. But I had to go from Midland, Texas to Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus, Ohio was where... There was going to be a massive event. I had a big deal pending with my previous company and this company together to bring some salespeople on board. It was going to be massive. I built the systems out, did the recruiting, did all that shit. And I had not enough money in my bank account to cover my rent at the apartment I was living at in Texas. And I left the rent check on the coffee table, got in the Jeep that was three months behind that I should never have purchased. It was costing me $500 a month to buy. And literally three o'clock in the morning knew that I wasn't going to have enough money for gas and food. I just took a walk around the block and I said, listen, 
after reading the alchemist, I was like, listen, if, if, if the universe, whatever this is, this better be a fucking fun journey. Cause I, I mean, it's gotta be that way. Got to Columbus, didn't have enough money to get back to Texas, had to operate as if my business was growing and, you know, show up every day as if I'm that leader. Meanwhile, my bank account literally was in the negative and try to figure that shit out. So uh, that car ended up getting repossessed that year. And I remember they came and got it in the middle of the winter time. They put it up on the truck and I heard it beeping because they couldn't get into it. And I remember waking up for a second and I was like, thank fucking God, one less car payment. And they fucking took that thing. And my ego took a shot for a moment. And I was like, the next day I got up, formulated a plan. And I was like, all right, all I have is this plan. If I execute this every fucking day as if my life depends upon it, that's what's got to happen. And from there, you know, every single day, it's just been devoting to that plan. But I had to bet on myself and believe in myself more than anything. I mean, there's, if you go to my Facebook and go to my live content, you'll see me doing interviews of people. You'll see me constantly trying to, to connect, building my skill sets, doing everything that I could. And that led me to be in this position where I can be incredibly valuable to entrepreneurs and to businesses. And um, those experiences also help me connect with people who are going through, you know, heavy shit because the financial piece of entrepreneurship is so glorified. But man, nobody tells you about the real expectations of it takes at least, you know, five, 10 years to build a solid business. So people live cash to cash and they kind of do their thing. But man, I learned a ton. I'm actually sweating thinking about it right now, but it was also fucking fun. The risk tolerance, learning how to operate lean, doing those things, going on appointments, not knowing what's going to happen, but committing to the process was a lot of fun. And, and now it informs me of how I can take those risks, but also be really pragmatic about the outcome. So that's been huge for me. And if, if I could like, like real time, love your comments on this thing, if I could like make hearts float out onto your window right now, I would totally do it because that's really what it comes down to more than anything else. All right. I will go next. So to add context, I go cave diving for fun. I Kathleen's kind of a fucking badass. I'm just going to put this out there. She's like, 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 she's like like, the Navy seal of real, real estate agents. Like that's spelunking. Like it miles worth of cave. No fucking cave diving, dude. Like, do you know how many people die every year of cave diving? And Kathleen's like, this is a hobby I want. Yeah. So like I take a couple of scuba tanks, I attach them to my sides with rubber bands and I go underwater for a couple hours in a cave. Furthest I've been is, uh, what is it? Five miles, three miles, something like that. One direction from the entrance. And the deepest I've been is about 300 feet. The longest dive I've done, which is very short compared to some people I know is uh, four hours underwater. And that doesn't scare me. Right. I, I, it's been a gradual buildup. You know, there's a lot of planning involved. There's a lot of backup systems. There's a lot of organization around it. I am super comfortable in those situations. For me, it's peaceful. It's beautiful. It's blissful. I love it. So that said, I bring that process to a lot of things I do. And there's not a ton of things that make me clench my sphincter. <laughs> So, you know, in my business, you know, you're making me clench my sphincter right now. (laughs) What about Lonely's tacos? We had tacos. Did that make you clench your sphincter? (laughs) It did not. I I just loved them. They didn't make me clench my sphincter later. No. So, yeah. So I bring that process to, to everything I do. You know, I, I research things. I get really prepared. I organize one thing that does make me really nervous. And I think it's been holding me back is 
growth and like having people rely on me again. Um, my, my company's been really small and lean for a long time and I've been seeing the need to expand that. And that means me being responsible for people. That means me getting out front in a sense, you'd say getting on stage. And that makes me really nervous, but that's not something I've actually done. You know, that's something that's like, I see the need to it and I'm preparing for it, but you know, I'm, I'm in the sphincter clenching state around that shift that I need to make right now. So I've sent my keynote link to like a handful of people in this group already, I think. A, a number of you have seen it. That was my very, very first paid per public speaking gig. And I was fucking terrified. And no one gets that sense. It's funny because you talk about like, you know, you have these things. Like I'm a systems guy because I'm terrified. I, I, I don't have some overarching like incredible yeah. bravery or courage that makes me go, I'm going to go do this thing. Like I have a very systemic system by which I evaluate risk and I'll engage with things based on how I evaluate the risk of those things. And sometimes I make very conscious and calculated decisions to exceed my risk analysis of some situation, you know? So like going and standing up on stage when my heart's pounding and, I, and I'm, I'm completely internally fucking completely terrified, but then nobody who's watched that link has ever been like, you look fucking scared as shit. And yet I was. Yeah. It's not about yeah. like, somebody once told me that like courage is not about not being fearful. It's about choosing to continue to act in the face Back of- Back to Brene Brown. Like yeah. Doing the fear, but doing it anyway. Yeah. Courage is not not having fear. Yeah, it's about doing it even though you're fearful. You, you found a certain comfort in activities which I think most sane people might not be comfortable in, you know, like- Totally agree. Diving, you know, like, uh, I've always been super impressed with you on that front. The fact that you're like, you looked at this with the risk portfolio of it and you're like, yep, I can do that. To me, that's like, that's wildly courageous. So, you know, I always applaud you for that. But, you know, when we look at like our businesses and all the rest of that, that's part of the equation. We have our risk assessment thing that we normally do. We're like, okay, this is okay. This is not okay. And all the rest of that. But then every now and then we make some play, which is the, the sphincter clenching play, right? Which was the original context of the question. We're like, oh, I think I can do this, but I'm not sure, you know. I do know, and I have a story for oh, you. Please. I would love to hear Speaking to that sphincter clenching going on. So I actually was in a position at one point in time, I was young, climbing the corporate ladder. I reported to the president of a company in an executive position, had a toddler that I just had. So she was eight months old at the time, traveling three weeks out of the month, going to multiple countries. And I get the news that my biological mother, who I was estranged from, had contracted Lou Gehrig's disease, which gave her a one to three year prognosis. The medical term is ALS. And I immediately went into like, oh my gosh, I am obligated to this woman, even though we did not have a relationship, had not spoken to her for some time. I'm obligated to this woman. Her muscles and her nerves are going to degenerate over time and she needs help. So my marriage was at the time was already on the brink of splitting up. I had a toddler and I had a career <laughs> and I had to give all of that up 
including my marriage and the focus on it to focus on this woman and make the decision to jump ship. And believe it or not, it led me to my current career. And it led me to my current path of being purpose-driven and placing focus on giving back to our community, helping the underserved, looking at developmental issues. And I think that was probably one of the best decisions I made, even though I sacrificed so much doing that. And I was very scared. I also had to move from Indiana down to Florida at the same time. I made all of these decisions all at once and created a brand new context by which my life would be living and had no idea what I was going to expect from it all. And I have to say it was one of the best decisions that I made. And it has led to kind of jumping into this entrepreneurial journey that I've been on and has led me to being part of this group, I think, as well, taking those risks. And even though it's hard and it's difficult to make those decisions, and I hear that resonating in all of the stories that everybody's sharing, Sometimes you have to make those decisions that take you down a path that you know is going to be terrible and it's going to be tough, but at the other end of it, it's a path that you needed to go down to learn and to grow and come out on the other end with the sun shining in your face. So thank you, Jinx, for leading me down that path to share that story. All right. I have one not pre-scheduled question that I'm just curious to ask all of you because we throw around a lot of words. <laughs> but I want to know, what's your favorite word? Like you try to use it as often as possible, or you feel like it doesn't get used enough, or when you hear it, like something lights up inside of you. But what is your favorite word? Oh my God. I love that question, Robin. Love that question. My favorite word since I've been a kid is discombobulated <laughs> and also juxtaposition. Just Those are good words discombobulated sounds like what it is like they're discombobulated. absolutely from a, a strictly just like something i naturally say a lot obviously is the word intentional <laughs> i even got jinx saying it a lot now from like a favorite word perspective like making somebody say it and it makes me snicker inside like a little 12 year old boy is probably like matriculated or exacerbated that makes me giggle those, are those two words together <laughs> exacerbated the matriculation so I- <laughs> I think context matters a lot here. And uh, my favorite word completely removed from context, I'm not going to share with y'all. But I'll give y'all one in a much more restricted context. I love the word palabras. And so it's funny because that's kind of a meta conversation, right? Because you're asking what's your favorite word. And I said my favorite word is words. But I love, I love the sound and the feel of that word. I've, I've always loved like Spanish structured languages. I was exposed to it a lot as a child. But palabras is such a like smooth word that just like really, like when, when we talk about expressing language in really meta terms or metaphysical terms, palabras is one of those words that just like it folds in on itself. You know, it's a word that means words. And I love that for that reason. And it's like velvet to say, which is why I love the word onomatopoeia. It's always been a thing ever since, you know, high school and we're studying Edgar Allan Poe and they started using this word and the word Poe is in it. Onomatopoeia. There you go. So I am a plain and simple kind of guy. I like fuck. A good Uh, fuck uh. with a good emphasis is fucking amazing. But I'll have something to say about Jinx and his palabras words. So there's something called Spanglish. We all kind of know what it is. 
but I'm sure you guys have not been able to speak it. I speak it, and I can only talk Spanglish to certain people, like my sister. She's bilingual. She speaks English and Spanish. So we go on in Spanglish, and it's the best fucking language ever because there are some things that don't sound good in English, but it sounds great in Spanish and vice versa. So when you're able to dominate those two fucking languages and combine them, you truly fucking say what you want to say. And you express yourself just tremendously well. So just um, a point to Jinx. But yeah, fuck is a good word. Victor, do you have an example of maybe a word that would sound amazing in Spanish but not in English and vice versa? Yeah, cenicero. That's fucking ashtray. How ugly is ashtray and how gray is cenicero? Right, I'm with you there. So, and in there's the also... There's no good English word that means exactly the same as entiendo. Entiendo is a great word. Um, you can say you comprehend, you understand, but entiendo drives it like, do you really get it? You embody it. Yes. Yes. So that's another word. So when my sister and I are talking, and if we're fighting, it's even better because we go in and we insult each other, which we rarely do, by the way. But we, when we communicate in these feisty ways, <laughs> we can come across and we can say things that just only ask and just fucking say what we want right from our hearts because we dominate the two languages. So it's really cool. It's really cool to be able to do that, especially with somebody that can do the same thing as well. And that's why we were able to say like, oye, vamonos uh, a McDonald's. <laughs> That's very Miami right there. First generation, second generation kids in Miami speaks just like that. Cállate tu fucking boca. <laughs> I've literally said uh, exactly that. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with the word moist. <laughs> I'm just kidding, y'all. <laughs> I'm going to say there's some people that absolutely hate that word. That's so funny. I I know that's why I said it. I'm just kidding. I like moist. I've got I've got two. Favorites. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> I prefer damn. So, from like a spiritual grounded <laughs> standpoint, my favorite word is sovereign. Like probably all time favorite word. But my funniest favorite word is gobsmacked. And the story I have behind that is that my sister, she's significantly older than me, so she grew up in England. And I never heard this word in my life. And all of a sudden we're talking and she has this British accent and she was like, oh, I was gobsmacked. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? And then she was like explaining it and she went into this whole full blown story. So now I just thought it's hilarious. And now I try to use it every chance I get. Wait a minute. I'm so hung up on the fact that you have a sister that speaks in a British accent. Yeah. <laughs> it's real life. <laughs> That's so crazy. To conceptualize that, it's like I've seen that on movies, but to know someone in real life that actually has- Can you has elaborate? Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> well, she's 23 years older than me. So we grew up in different times. And so she grew up in England and that's where she learned, you know, to speak and her accent and everything else. And I grew up in DC, good old America. So- That's awesome. Amazing. Amazing. So what's really funny about this is, so I, I spent the first half of my life in Europe. And I moved from the UK to North Carolina, which, as y'all may know, is very different from the UK. 
And so, like, I showed up in fifth grade in North Carolina, and my teacher just found this amazing. Now, I'd spent the last five years of my formative existence in England, all of the years when you're learning how to talk. Now, I spent the first three years of my life in Spain, so I was exposed to Spanish early on. But from five to ten, I was in the UK, and so I spoke like a Brit, right? Hello, nice to meet you, you know. So I moved from there to North Carolina, and my teacher thought I was the most, the cutest thing ever, right? She was like, oh. So my first day in class, she's like, now class. Now, by the way, class has two syllables, class. I would like y'all to meet Chris Jenkins. He just came here all the way from England, and he just has the cutest accent. Now say hello, Chris. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have been in fifth grade before. But the way that you're looking to be described is not as the cutest accent kid in the class. So I'm like, um, hello, I'm Chris Jenkins. Please don't kill me. And they're all like, let's kill him. And that was my exposure to American culture for the first time in my substantive history. So accents matter. What part of North Carolina? I was going to say, there's a difference between Raleigh and Greensboro. No, it was Charlotte. Oh, yeah. I'm, all, I'm familiar with Charlotte. Yeah, cool. We were seven miles from Carowinds, you know, for, for all yeah. y'all North Carolina people. Absolutely. I have a, I have another word for you guys. Lay so, it on us. <laughs> it's chupa mi pinga. It's one word. <laughs> That's <laughs> three fucking words. What it means, is, what it means is hello, and I'm glad to be here. So That's you three words. Everywhere you go. So I have an accent, as you might notice, maybe. I know. I know you don't know. But I, some people think that I have an accent. Anyways, if I have trouble pronouncing a word, I'll find a word that I can pronounce. So chewing, to me, it's not that easy. But I can fucking say masticate mm, like no one else. That's a good word. So that's I really use it. People fucking, some people don't get it because they don't get it. But I much rather use masticate than chewing. Masticate me empanadas, motherfucker. That's, That's what you awesome. should be So I love big words. I ate up English class like nobody's business, and I love words like ebullient and triskaidekaphobia and moribund Ooh. and eponymous and everything you can imagine. But my absolute favorite word is a totally nonsense word. So I think depending on where you grow up in the U.S., you have a word for that thing. It's whatchamacallit, or thingamajig, or something or other, right? There's a word that means a thing that you don't know what to call it, okay? So my friend Marilyn from Tennessee taught me that her version is hoobie-doobie. <laughs> Wait, what? Hoobie-doobie. hoobie-doobie? Hoobie-doobie. So one day Never we're in the office, and she wants me to hand her the stapler, and she says, Robin, hand me that hoobie-doobie over there. <laughs> and I went, what? What kind of words did you just say? It, there's so much like guttural tone involved in it, and it gets so much of your body moving, hoobie-doobie. So yeah, next time you're stuck and you're like trying to tell somebody, you know, that thing over there, instead of whatchamacallit, I encourage you to say hoobie-doobie. Hoobie-doobie. Okay, can you can you believe that nobody here said turpitude after the weekend we had last I weekend? Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, pretty I have amazing. Some thoughts about turpitude? No, I really don't. Only only the moral kind. I was going to say the call to action for this episode is for everyone to examine their moral turpitude and get back to us. 
So I spent and a little time note, examining my moral turpitude, and uh, as it turns out, I didn't like it at all. And on that note, y'all, I think we can wrap up this happy hour edition. Before we sign off, cheers, unfuckers. Salud. Yes, baby. Cheers, y'all. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learned in this episode and do something with it. You're going to find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode. Go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show. Oh, shit. We got to swap it around now. All right. See, we should have done this way before happy hour. Jesus fucking Christ. It's getting all complicated. You're going to laugh later when you hear yourself say subscribe. Thank you a Subscribe. Subscribe. There's no B anymore. Subscribe. Subscribe. Let's do it. <laughs>